The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show. On this week's episode, we are speaking with Sangwon Su. He's a professor at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management, University of California in Santa Barbara. He has a PhD in environmental science and engineering from uh, Leiden University in the Netherlands, and he also got his uh, master's and bachelor's in environmental engineering at Aju University in South Korea. His research focuses on the sustainability of human nature complexity through understanding materials and energy exchanges between them. He was appointed as a member of the International Resource Panel by the United Nations Environmental Program and served as the coordinating lead author of the Assessment Report 5 by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, I really just want to learn about you because I think you've done some absolutely amazing work in the environment that's really going to help us move forward. So I'm I'm interested in learning more about you and then your project. Now, the the one study that I was reading about was from Nature. And that is the one that says we're basically on this trajectory to plastic accounting for about 13% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Is that right? Um, let me see. So 13% goes 8 gigatons. I'm just uh, dividing things by, it could be, it could be uh, 13%, but it's, it's difficult to guess because um, we don't know what will be the future greenhouse gas emissions. And, um, you know, there were several numbers that were in the, um, in our paper and also some of the, um, the, the news articles. So let me just clarify a few things. So basically, the current greenhouse gas emissions from plastics is 1.88 gigatons of uh, CO2 equivalent greenhouse gas emissions per year. Mm. And globally, we are generating about 50 gigatons. So that makes about 3.6% uh, of um, greenhouse gas emissions associated with the plastics. Okay, And then that can grow to up to 8 gigaton per year. And if we are keeping our current emissions at 50%, that means 16% of the total greenhouse gas emissions globally will be associated with the plastics production and, uh, and disposal, uh, end of life management. Our greenhouse, global greenhouse gas emissions will not be remained at the 50 gigaton per year. It may go up, it may go down. Um, so that's one number. And another number is about the uh, carbon budget. So, yeah, let, let me just kind of clear your questions first, and then I, I can talk more about the carbon budget calculation. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's go back and start at the beginning then. So what piqued your interest in the environment? I kind of started quite early. So when I was in uh, junior high school, there was a, a TV show, documentary TV show, which was about collecting dead birds around the uh, uh, riverbanks and, um, and open fields and try to find, uh, try to understand why those birds died. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the study, the, the documentary found that the those birds died out of uh, what is called bioaccumulation, which is that, well, the uh, toxic substances accumulate across the trophic levels in the uh, food chain. 
um, and um, the the birds who are you know top predators in the in the food chain, they have uh, disproportionately larger amount of toxins accumulated in their body, and that's they concluded that that's the uh, the main cause of uh, of death, and that was very shocking to me. Mm-hmm. Um, as a boy, and I decided, well, I want to really work on this environmental issues. I want to save the world, and, <laughs> and I thought that environmental engineering is the discipline that can do that, um, which was not. Uh, environmental engineering, by and large, is about really designing the uh, the uh, the technologies that is cost-effective so that uh, it can pass the regulation. Um, and that was not really about saving the world, and um, I wanted to do, you know, the type of, um, you know, scientific research that uh, has more, more kind of uh, holistic view of why these problems occur and what are the relationship between the modern society and the environment. So that led me to the study on industrial ecology. Mm-hmm. And then recently you have the study that came out in Nature on plastic and climate change. And what got you interested in specifically the plastics issue? Right. So plastic is one of the things that really characterize modern lifestyle. And um, yeah. have you seen the, uh, the the movie, the what is that, The Graduation? No. Dustin Hoffman? Um, it's, it's a fun movie. It's a very old movie. I think it was like released in the 1970s or even 60s. And in the movie, one of the, the fun part of the movie is that um, already at that time, um, the, the the word plastics, at that, at that time, the word plastic was very new. And the, the, in the movie, um, an elder um, man is uh, telling a, uh, the fresh graduates from a university, which is Dustin Hoffman, said, well, you remember just one word. That's plastics, and he believed that the plastics will change the world. And if you want to earn a lot of money, then you have to do something about plastics. And that was absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. Um, plastics were um, not mass produced before 1960s, um, and since 1960s, the amount of plastics that we generate is really um, gone up. Um, crazy, and um, you know, 1950, uh, the amount of plastics produced globally was only about two million tons, but now we are producing about 380 million tons. Oh no! Um, and it, 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 in no way it is possible that that much of uh, you know new anthropogenic flow of materials does not um, uh, affect the environment. It yeah. will affect the environment one way or another if you are producing that much of material. Anthropogenically, um, it will affect the environment one way or another, and we are already, of course, seeing those effects. And many of the, um, you know, research, uh, scientific research, has found the, uh, the, you know, the impact on the marine uh, ecosystem um, um, and um, the ecosystem health issues. And uh, we know some study found that uh, microfiber, microplastics, are in the sea salt and everywhere that we uh, breathe or eat and touch. And um, even the ice cores um, in the Arctic and Antarctica, there are plastics there, although nobody, you know, barely um, comes there. So, yeah. you know, we know this kind of uh, uh, these these impacts that plastics are generating. But interestingly, very few studies ever really looked into the greenhouse gas emissions implications of plastics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the reasons might be that, well, you know, greenhouse gas emissions are not feasible, but, uh, you know, um, plastics uh, in the guts of penguin, um, you know, that penguin is, is really visible. So it's also striking and shocking. And that, 
that really led people to got really angry uh, about the plastics in the ocean. But, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, unfortunately, is not feasible, although it is really imminent uh, problem that we are facing. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that, that got me the interest. Good. Well, thank you. I, I kind of wonder why more people aren't looking at this as a problem because you can just look at your recycling bin, you know, exactly. if you're in North America or Europe and see how much you produce every week. And if you're exactly. not able to get rid of it, it's a lot. And then when you travel, you just see that it's absolutely everywhere. And exactly. for me, that's why I started this podcast because I think it's scary and it's, I'm not a scientist and I, <laughs> I, I'm not nearly as smart as you are. So this is my way of trying to get this information out to people because it's so important and it's so cheap and convenient and light, right? So it's it's really good fa- packaging for food um, and for different things. So my question is always, how do we change our behavior so that we're taking away our food in a reusable container or our coffees or just everything? It's like, it's a, this behavioral change. It is a economical change. There are so many different aspects to it. And, yep. uh, and, and these studies help so much because when I read the statistics from your study, I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is key because climate change is such a big thing right now, but I feel like not as, not enough people are talking about the plastic part. So when you estimate that, you know, by, by 2050, we could be up to like 13% of greenhouse gas emissions by plastic. I, th- I think that that stuff really resonates with people and hopefully that's a tipping point where people stop using plastic. I'm, I'm hoping, or at least, you know, reduce it. It's almost impossible to stop using yeah. it. I hope um, that's the case. <laughs> but I think that, you know, probably we will talk more about this, uh, what, what what kind of um, interventions or measures to be taken to really uh, reduce this impact. But I think that individual behavioral change you know, studies have shown that in the past it's very, very slow and difficult procedure. And I think that um, there should be a systematic um, interventions by the government and leaders in, of the world that really recognizes this and and um, really um, uh, make dramatic changes. Otherwise, if we rely on rely on you know goodwill uh, by uh, average people. It would be it would be very difficult to really see a measurable sea change on the use of plastics. But we can talk more about that uh, toward a later stage of our conversation. Yeah, I know what you mean. You know, I I try to live zero waste, and then for my kid's birthday, I bought him a bunch of berries in those plastic containers. Yeah. Luckily, we can recycle them here. But I remember thinking in the checkout, like, what if somebody sees me and I have these plastic <laughs> containers? Like, it's totally against who I am. It's bad for the environment. And then I I realized that. Everybody else is buying the plastic containers, so nobody is going to judge me because they're all doing it too. And I thought, this is a big problem, and I'm not going to solve it just by my behavior. Exactly. I mean, let's just face it. I mean, plastics are amazing material. It's not cheap, and uh, it doesn't really cost anything, and it's water impermeable. There are very few things that we can find um, at that price that is not permeable. Uh, mm-hmm. With water, so you can contain things that you want to protect uh, the materials from rain and water. There is there is no other no cheaper material that you can buy than plastics, and plastics can be morphed into any any form. You can blow mold it, you can um, you can cast that, you can uh, cut them, um, you can really make o- almost any shape uh, that you want. 
and it can also um, uh, be made to the type of properties that you want. Like I mean, if you want a rough texture, then you can do that. Smooth texture, glossy, and you can all do that. And um, also the, the density can be modulated, color can be modulated. It's amazing, amazing material. So I think that it's wrong to blame really people who need uh, inexpensive material that um, that they need for the purposes that they have. It is really the system that really need to incorporate the, um, the external cost, the environmental damages those materials will cause into the price of those materials properly. Mm-hmm. So that by the time when we are making those purchasing decisions, we don't really have to think about um, or appeal to the ethics and knowledge uh, on the environment. Basically, the pricing system itself can take care of uh, the purchase of a better envi- the materials that are more environmentally benign. Mm-hmm. What do you think about reusables if um, if there were more reusable containers or a rule yeah, that... Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah. that's definitely better, better for the environment. And um, when, when, you, when you think about reusables, however, you, you know, as a consumer, I have a, always a choice. So let's say, you know, if I want to buy utensils, I can buy stainless utensils or um, I can buy plastic utensils. Yeah. And if I buy plastic utensils, and then, you know, I can just uh, use it and discard it and people may feel that it's, uh, it's more convenient and that you don't have to carry that um, heavy um, um, stainless utensils and you don't have to wash them either. And it's cheaper. So there are always kind of cons and pros. And by the fact that people are using a lot of um, uh, disposable plastic utensils, it means that they see more benefit, more utility out of those plastics utensils, especially if you're going for like picnics and uh, having like a birthday party of your your kids, as you mentioned, um, it's, it's so convenient. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously we can say that well, instead of using disposable, you know, why don't you use more reusable? It does not have to be stainless, but they can be uh, reusable plastics. Yes, that's yeah. possible. But you know, people are doing their own math based on the convenience factor, price, all that. But the current system, economic system that we are living in, um, is designed in such a way that disposable ones are preferred Mm because they are so cheap. I sometimes wonder that our quick way of living, especially in North America, fuels that as well because a lot of the food that we can get in big cities, nobody wants to wash dishes and so they'll just give you plastic forks and it's almost like nobody has time to just sit down for 20 minutes and eat they want to get their food and go and you know eat in the like people eat in their cars exactly (laughs) exactly yeah i mean i I don't i don't also blame you know the uh, those people i mean they they may be busy and you know the the extra 20 minutes to wash uh you know dishes may mean a lot of things for them Uh, you know there are many reasons i mean it is also not about in some cases uh, especially low-income families you know who earns money hour by hour those 20 minutes can mean a lot of things for them so it is unfair to blame them. Oh, yeah, you you don't want to wash your dishes, and uh, you know you are polluting by using the disposable plastics. I mean, there could be uh, many reasons why they prefer, and some of them I think we cannot really blindly blame them. 
That's good. I think so too. That's why I try and focus on positive things and yeah. po- positive businesses because it is a it's a worldwide planetary problem, and I think we're all in exactly. it and we're all part of it. So I, I I agree. I don't like to point fingers at certain groups and especially lower income families because it is cheaper to go and buy laundry detergent in a tiny little single use package. Let's say because yeah. I know this happens in a lot of developing countries than it is to get in a big SUV and drive to Costco or another big box store and get, you know, those big giant things that are like $50 of laundry detergent. Like that's kind of better for the environment. They often come in paper, but you know, a lot of people around the world can't afford that and don't have that option. And so they use the single use packages or smaller ones and then that's more garbage, right? So exactly, that is a problem for sure. So you, you mentioned, um, a lot about the plastics and the carbon in intensive life cycle. So obviously we're using oil and gas to make it and it's not very good for the environment. So why is plastic contributing to carbon pollution? Right. So the reason why um, plastics are contributing to green greenhouse gas emissions is because in order for the factories to produce plastics, it has to go through a whole bunch of uh, processes. First, uh, crude oil needs to be extracted. As you mentioned, plastics are uh, pre- predominantly produced out of crude crude petroleum mm-hmm. as feedstock. As I will t- tell you more about um, you know, different types of feedstocks, it is possible to produce uh, plastics out of uh, trees, out of uh, plants, out of corn and sugarcane. But predominantly, currently, we are producing plastics predominantly from uh, crude petroleum. So extracting crude petroleum itself um, is generating greenhouse gas emissions because there are a little bit of methane in the oil wells, and uh, you either flare them um, or transport them. And there, you know, there are many ways, many reasons why they may be leaky and generating greenhouse gas emissions. And then, well, once it is transported to refinery, then they will try to. Uh, separate water and separate um, gasoline, diesel, jet fuels, and what is left is naphtha. Mm-hmm. So those distillation processes is also energy consuming, and it generates greenhouse gas emissions. And once it's distilled, then well, it will be cracked, or it will it will go through many different types of uh, chemical processes to generate uh, what is called uh, resin. So resins wow. are the the basic building blocks that can be uh, transformed into various different types of plastics. And all those processes, step by step, requires energy, transportation, and generate greenhouse gas emissions there. Wow. So that's just before it even gets to a place where they make it into plastic. Like, this is just to make the resin, right? Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then, well, once the resin is made, well, you know, if you want to extrude it or blow mold it, you have to heat it. And heating process also uh, requires energy and mm-hmm. generate greenhouse gas emissions. And so that's conversion, what is called in my in our paper. And then once it is um, sold to the consumer and being used, um, very little greenhouse gas emissions, if any, um, are generated uh, during the use phase. But once it's discarded, um, it can be incinerated. Then, well, all the carbon molecules in the plastics will be converted into CO2. Mm-hmm. And that's greenhouse gas. And if it is composted, so some of the uh, the bio-based uh, uh, plastics are compostable. And if it is composted, again, it will generate CO2 emissions. 
So mm. mainly, if I just summarize, the main reason why uh, plastics life cycle generate greenhouse gas emissions is because the extraction, production, and conversion of plastics will generate greenhouse gas emissions as well as the end-of-life management of plastics, including incineration and compost, will generate greenhouse gas emissions. So if regular plastic is being broken down in a compost, it would basically turn into like microplastics, right? Right. Well, if it is fully composted, the idea is to break down those uh, those molecules into you know smaller molecules. It can be microplastics mm-hmm. or it can be uh, fully biodegraded so that very little plastics left, if any, and all of them um, are converted into CO2. So that, uh, yeah. 100% petroleum-based plastic can go away through compost? Because my understanding was no. that it can't go no. away. Okay. So the compostable plastics are uh, uh, made out of uh, biomass feedstock. Corn. Currently, uh, corn, yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. Corn and sugar cane. Those are yeah, the yeah. two main ingredients, main feedstock uh, that uh, is converted into biodegradable plastics. When that composts, so if we use the biodegradable plastics, will that produce methane as it's being composted? It can be methane, it can be CO, carbon monoxide, or it can be carbon dioxide. And if those if those compostable plastics end up getting into landfill, if someone just throws it in the trash, yeah. would that produce methane eventually? In the long run, um, yeah. some of them will be converted into methane. But we know very little about the uh, fate, tra- fate of the uh, plastics in the, uh, in the landfill. So we have actually reviewed some of the studies um, that are out there that talks about the biodegradability of plastics in different uh, environments. And uh, there is very little evidence of um, you know, how fast do they degrade in the, in the landfill environment, if, they, if any of mm-hmm. them is degraded. Have you heard of Tom Zaki from TerraCycle? He wrote a book and he's, a, he's an entrepreneur. And they did a study in landfill where they just dug up some bags and yeah. they found a head of lettuce and a half-eaten hot dog. <laughs> and a newspaper dating from 50 years ago. So, yeah. <laughs> but he started the loop program too. Uh, I don't know if you, it's like a, a mail order thing for food. And when you're done with your container, you just throw it back in the box and oh, I see. I they take know it back. About that one. But uh, yeah, I think I've heard about him. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he sounds really cool. So, so yeah, by correlation, basically they, they've dated that a head of lettuce will not decompose in a landfill after 50 years. That's crazy. <laughs> and that the newspaper won't even go away at all, so you can still read the date. Like, it, the newspaper wow. was still readable. So that really scares me, honestly. Yeah. That's yeah. really disturbing. But, but, but there's also an interesting um, issue in, in connection to greenhouse gas emissions because, you know, we want, you know, some of us feel that, well, if plastics are all easily decomposable, then we will not have problems of uh, ocean plastics, right? Part of us believe that, well, you know, plastics should be made easily decomposable so that we don't really see them in the environment. But they will be a disaster for climate change. Because you have to grow all those crops and make the plastic? Well, because if they are decomposed, what they are decomposed <clears throat> into? Methane. They are decomposed into methane or more, more likely CO2. Mm-hmm. So because of the sheer volume of plastics that we are generating, converting all of the uh, plastics into CO2 means a massive amount of additional greenhouse gas emissions to be generated. 
So okay. for the for the greenhouse gas emissions uh, uh, point of view, so climate mitigation point of view, um, the best solution is actually to landfill them and 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 you know prevent them to be decomposed um, and, and generate uh, CO2 emissions out of it. Oh, no. But of course there is a trade-off because we don't want these valuable resources sitting in landfill not decomposed for millions of years. No, that's also um, you know not good. So. So what I'm saying is that well I'm not necessarily you know uh, advocating you know landfilling all the plastics but you know we have to understand that there are trade-offs there is no single solution that can um, that can satisfy all the, the ecological economic needs that we have and we need to really understand the trade-off situation that we are in. Yeah, yeah, and and landfills have the problems too because methane will be piped out and groundwater can be contaminated yeah. from them too. And then they get crowded and uh, there's an island, what is it called? The Cayman Islands. And the highest point on the entire island is the landfill. It look, It's like a trash mountain. Yeah, yeah. And it's leaking into the coral reefs and stuff. So, so that's a problem. Yeah. But I should ask you, because you might know the answer to this. So I've read that CO2 is measured in a 100-year lifespan. And so when you compare methane to CO2 – Methane seems less bad for the atmosphere because it basically is quicker, like the damage is quicker and only goes about 30 years and then it kind of is like gone from the atmosphere. So people typically seem to focus on CO2 as a big problem. But in the short term, in those 30 years, I've heard methane is worse. Do you know? Yeah. So the methane has a much higher capacity to absorb heat. Um, and oh. re-radiate re um, the, the infrared as a heat back to the Earth. So it has much higher potency of warming the globe. However, you're absolutely right that uh, their lifetime is short. Mm -hmm. So um, how long methane lives, you know, it's difficult to tell because um, they, they kind of go asymptotically to zero. So they will not completely disappear until like, uh, hundreds of years. So we, we normally measure half-life. What mm -hmm. is the time that uh, methane, that half of the methane that are just created will disappear? Okay. So half-life-wise, uh, methane is really short. I don't have uh, those numbers top of my head, but I can easily find them. Um, and CO2 is very stable. So it uh, stays in the atmosphere for a very long time, hundreds of years you know, still you will see, um, you know, significant portion of the CO2 em emitted will reside in the atmosphere. So you're absolutely right that if we really measure um, greenhouse gas emissions in the in terms of their global warming potential, what is called, um, within a shorter uh, time horizon, let's say five years, then methane has a lot higher potency as compared to CO2. But if we expand the time horizon within which we measure the potency of these gases on uh, global warming potential, then, well, methane becomes relatively less potent as compared to CO2 because most of them will be gone. Yeah. Okay, that all makes sense. And did you happen to read the National Geographic article? Maybe it came from a science study that you would have read about when plastic breaks down just sitting there in the grass or wherever, that it releases uh, CO2 as well? Oh yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. I think I read that, and uh, there was a researcher who um, studied that. So that's very interesting. So, 
you know, what we found was that, well, plastics in the ocean um, takes really long time to degrade, but plastics in the terrestrial environment, especially when they are exposed to the sun, um, they can be degraded relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is, I mean, how much of plastics that are generated to the environment will sit on the ground exposed to the sun? And I think that this is a relatively smaller portion, uh, but still, yeah, you're absolutely right uh, that that will contribute to the emissions of greenhouse gas emissions. However, um, if you compare those amounts coming from the discarded plastics exposed to the sun as compared to the uh, the amount of greenhouse gas emissions emitted due to the large amount of uh, energy consumption throughout the life, uh, life cycle of plastics and also disposable plastics, the former is relatively small. Yeah, yeah. And are there certain types of plastics that would emit more gases than others? Yes. So polyester, polyamide, and acrylic um, is, in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions intensity, um, is the highest. So um, they are generally used for garments. Yeah, polyamide is used, I think, for fish nets too. Mm-hmm. And they're like a big problem in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so let's talk about your, your four strategies because this is something that a lot of news outlets focused on from your article. So what are your four strategies for reducing the carbon footprint of plastic? Those four strategies include, one, use of a low-carbon energy, including renewable electricity. Mm-hmm. instead of um, current mix of energy. Second, recycling of plastics. Third, reducing the, uh, the growth rate of consumption. Yeah. And replacing petroleum-based plastics by biomass-based plastics. Those are the four strategies. And those four strategies can be combined together because they are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I don't think any... any- well, I mean, if we reduced our use for it and didn't use single-use plastics, I suppose that would solve it. But I, I just don't see that happening because, as no. you were saying before, they're just so helpful and convenient for exactly. people. Exactly. And also the important thing to notice here is that the plastics are produced in a way as a, as an attempt to utilize what was wasted. So basically the NAFSA, which is the main... Uh, feedstock for uh, for making all kinds of different plastics is a byproduct or waste. It was a waste product out of uh, petroleum refining to produce gasoline and diesel. So after extracting gasoline and diesel, you know you get kind of thick, black, dirty-looking materials out of the refinery, and people, you know, basically discarded them, just landfill them or dumped to the ocean in the past oh my goodness. because we didn't know how to use them. Uh, it was only 19, uh, 1950s and 1960s and 70s um, people understood how to make use of those materials that have, have been discarded and started to produce all kinds of different plastic material out of that. Um, so what I mean by uh, uh, this is that, well, you know, as long as we are using gasoline and diesel, there will be the amount of uh, plastic feedstock, feedstock for plastics will be produced, okay? So even if we completely stop using plastics, still we will have the materials to be produced out of the gasoline and diesel refinery, and if we don't do anything, we will just discard it to landfill. Wow. 
So it's basically like the same thing. Or, or would that be more detrimental to the environment to be putting that naphtha in a landfill or the ocean than it is to put plastic in the ocean or landfill? Well, I, I think, think that so. if we put all of them into ocean, it will be much more detrimental because plastics is uh, plastics are st- more stable as compared to naphtha, and naphtha is is, is you know is more toxic uh, than plastic. So in a way, uh, what we are doing with plastics is better than um, throwing the naphtha away directly. Okay, so does that fall into your first solution, or is that more for reducing fossil fuels in the the factory of making plastic, basically. Yeah. So, so we found that the most kind of um, most significant or substantial reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from our scenario analysis was actually converted, transitioning our um, energy system into low carbon energy system, and the uh, re- reducing our growth rate, growth rate of the uh, plastics consumption from four percent a year to two percent a year. So those two are the most profound. Those two have the most profound effect in reducing greenhouse gas emissions from plastics life cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we all stop driving uh, and using gas and oil and stuff, then that would that would help, I guess. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Oh, it's very. It's a very fascinating uh, thought, really. And um, so the other thing is bioplastics. Now I know that. Some states, I think California specifically, was struggling a little bit to separate the bioplastics from regular plastics, and then yeah. they weren't really sure what to do with them. So yeah. how are bioplastics better than petroleum plastics? Yeah. So bioplastics currently are not really composted. So the original idea of, of bioplastic was, was that, well, they are biodegradable, so we can use bioplastics without worrying about, um, you know, plastics in the ocean. But the reality is that bioplastics don't degrade in the ocean environment. It, will, it, it is as inert as petroleum-based plastics really? in, the, in the ocean environment, yes. Oh, that's so, so disappointing. We, we, we have another um, study that um, we are finalizing, which is about, you know, biodegradability of different types of plastics under different environment. And um, the big myth about bioplastics is that their biodegradability. So they are biodegradable only under a very specific condition, and that condition is maintained only in the industrial scale composting uh, operations. So if you just discard it to the environment, basically they are as inert as petroleum-based plastics. Wow. Yeah, that's really disappointing. I just assumed that if they got into the ocean that they would Break down and exactly, yeah. It will behave more or less the same as the petroleum-based plastics. So the reason why bio-based plastics are better in terms of greenhouse gas emissions is because the origin of the carbon molecules in bio-based plastics are from the atmosphere. So, so currently the largest feedstock for making bio-based plastics are corn and sugarcane. Mm-hmm. And those carbon molecules in corn and sugarcane are coming from the atmosphere. So through the uh, photosynthesis, those carbon dioxide in the atmosphere were converted into organic materials, and that's what we are using to produce, um, you know, PLAs and other bio-based plastics materials. And 
that is completely different, uh, fundamentally different from petroleum-based plastics because petroleum-based plastics were already, you know, safely stored under the earth crust yeah. in the form of crude petroleum, and we are extracting it, extracting it, and burn it um, and liberate to the atmosphere. So that is a net addition to carbon stock in the atmosphere, whereas the carbon molecules in bio-based plastics are were originally from the uh, the environment, so we are not necessarily adding to the to the environment. But the reason why it does still generate greenhouse gas emissions is because, as I said, the processing of the uh, of the materials and transporting them and those kind of things all generate greenhouse gas emissions. But bio-based plastics. But also the disposal, right? Because when yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so does it, does growing bioplastics take out more carbon from the air than it puts back in the air when it's uh, composted? No. So the bioplastics do have net addition to, um, to greenhouse gas emissions to the environment. So if you think about just the carbon in the plastics, carbon molecules in the bio-based plastics, they will be equal, right? The amount of uh, carbon that they absorb from the atmosphere will be equal to the amount of carbon that they will be uh, liberated to the atmosphere when they are decomposed uh, in, in the form of compost or incineration at the end of their life. But then, if you just count the molecules in the material, it is net, net zero emission. But the problem is that you need to use energy to process them and heat them, distill them. All those chemical processes will generate uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And that's why it has a net addition to, uh, to greenhouse gas emissions. Now, if you put all those uh, bio-based plastics at the end of their life into landfill so that you prevent... Uh, generating greenhouse gas emissions um, at the end of their lives. Let me see whether it will reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, overall or not. So we do have that those numbers. So they will be the same as 100% recycling. No, but it, it will still generate a little bit more greenhouse gas emissions. So even if we put those uh, plastics back in um, the uh, the earth crust in the form of uh, like landfill, uh, still the amount of uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions generated throughout the processing of the bio-based plastics will be higher than the net reduction in uh, greenhouse gas emissions due to the uh, the photosynthesis. Yeah, and those extra emissions are things, I would assume, like the tractor, you know, that that yeah. is taking care of growing the corn. Um, I'm sure there are fossil fuel-based fertilizers yeah. and... Um, exactly. What are, like pesticides and then the heating for the compost facility, the trucks that would have to like transport all of these things. So all of that. Exactly. Cost. But if, if, if you uh, completely decarbonize all of them, so let's suppose that well, we are using um, renewable electricity and those, uh, those vehicles like tractors are uh, battery powered uh, electric vehicles mm. and uh, the processing of the uh, corn and sugar cane and converting them into different types of chemicals and uh, and converting them into plastics, all those things are powered by renewable electricity. Then and then, you if you put those uh, bio-based plastics after use into uh, landfill so that you don't you know generate any greenhouse gas emissions out of it, then there will be net negative emissions, meaning that it, this this will work as a carbon sequestration. Wow. 
but that there's a lot of ease, <laughs> as you may have noticed. So much work, <laughs> right? It just makes so much more sense to just like not take that plastic cup from <laughs> from the store, you know, just just grab some water when you get home. That's my theory, but as yeah, you said yeah, before, it, it doesn't work for everyone. So true, we have yeah, to find things yeah. that work in our society. So, I mean, that exactly. is a good vision. I mean, the the, the general statistics of that globally. The, the amount of uh, plastics that are recycled um, uh, is less than 10%. It's a 9.85%. Um, 9. Yeah. So uh, over 91% of the, uh, the plastics that are produced are not being recycled. So they will be discarded one way or another. So for me and my listeners, as a scientist, could you give us a little explanation of how scientists determine these statistics? Well, there are generally two ways in which you um, you approach this kind of a problem. One is the one is top-down approach, which is that well, um, we look at the global production volume for plastics and uh, the production of the recycled plastics, and then we you kind of deduct how much could have been recycled um, to meet the, the amount of um, the recycled plastics that are being generated. So using kind of global statistics uh, at a very high level and try to deduct that. Uh, another way is to assemble country by country kind of data on the on recycling rates uh, and their volume and try to assemble them together to come up with a global uh, statistics. So one of the reasons statistics actually were done by my colleague uh, Roland Geyer, so he basically tried to reconcile those uh, top down versus bottom up uh, estimations and came up with the number. Yeah, it seems like it would be hard to do, but I guess if you are a recycling facility being paid for by tax money, you would have to keep statistics. Like you would have to be weighing the trucks and the bales and and yeah. and keeping track of all that information. So exactly, yeah. And um, yeah. one of the uh, people that I, I work with it is from Unilever, and oh um, yeah, they set their vision to eliminate petroleum-based plastics by I think it was like twenty thirty or something like that. Really, um, the things that the they need, you know, scientific information on what is the best for them. So they didn't know about, you know, whether bio-based plastics are better or worse and what what does it really mean to have them. So all those things, I think, is important for us to have this kind of, um, you know, scientific measures on the uh, environmental impact of these different alternatives before they take action. So many of them yeah. are really uh, genuinely um, <clears throat> interested in understanding better. Good. Yeah. Like what if you take a billion dollars and change your company and then do something that's just as bad for the environment as exactly you were um, doing? <laughs> exactly. So you kind of painted a nice picture for us with the carbon-free tractors and uh, fossil fuel-free kind of way of living and growing these corn-based and sugar-based plastics. Do you have a vision sort of for the world of how we can live sustainably going forward where we don't meet these these really bad greenhouse gas emissions from plastic. What we um, concluded in our paper was that the decarbonization of uh, of energy is really the priority, which is which sounded a little odd because you know we talked more about plastics, which is really tangible material. Then now the solution is really decarbonizing energy, so people may think that well there's a disconnect you know you know this here is a, on one hand we have we have this material and on the other hand the decarbonization of energy which is you know fairly different thing from plastics but but they are not different thing because you know anything that we do we do use energy mm-hmm. and energy 
use is the primary source of greenhouse gas emissions in most cases for any materials and product that they were um, consuming. So decarbonization of energy, it will provide multiple benefits, um, not only for plastics, but it will also green other industry. And before we think about any other things like, um, you know, uh, shifting into bio-based plastics or, you know, improving recycling rates and all those things, of course, it will benefit the, the environment and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But first and foremost, we want to decarbonize our energy systems. We found that that's really uh, important. And then once we do that, then we can explore other options that we have listed in our in our paper, including, you know, better recycling. I mean, 10% bar is so low. I mean, we can easily improve that. Um, we can yeah. double, triple, quadruple it. Uh, we should be able to. And some countries are already doing it. So countries like China, believe it or not, their recycling rate is much higher, so over 90%. Um, wow. So there are ways in which we can achieve much better recycling rate than what we have today. And that requires not only the behavioral change, but also systematic changes by the leaders and the uh, inner polity of, of the world by, for example, uh, incorporating external cost environmental damages into um, into the pricing of plastics more properly, for example, so that we don't have to rely on individual goodwill and the system takes care of those behavioral elements in our society. So yeah, those, um, those multiple dimensions of uh, actions, I think, should be able to bring down the greenhouse gas emissions by plastics. And if we can do that, uh, we can do that for other materials and other goods and services as well. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any specific example of how to increase recycling rates? Because mm-hmm. I th- I think that garbage should be taken away in clear bags. But we had someone come on the show and say, no, that would just cause fights between, you know, people who live in their house and the garbage man. <laughs> like it, it, that sort of thing wouldn't work. Do you have any like specific things you've thought about? Yeah, so we we are actually uh, working on the improving the recycling layer of uh, plastics. There are multiple dimensions of uh, of actions that can be taken, and much of that uh, requires uh, quite serious research and development and new technologies too. So one very simple way, it sounds simple, but of course implementing it requires a lot of um, um, effort, is is to just simply increase the, the price of plastics, which which sound odd, but it will really improve recycling rate. The reason why recycling is not done uh, in the United States is because virgin material is cheaper than recycled materials. Mm-hmm. So you put a lot of effort to collect uh, recyclates, convert them and clean them and convert them and generate a little bit of uh, recycled plastics after all the losses that uh, t- take place. And then, well, when you try to sell it, you know, virgin plastics are half of the price that what you are generated. So why would you do recycling? It doesn't make any economic sense. Yeah. So if the, the the virgin plastics are priced much higher, then recycled plastics will still have economic competitiveness. Currently, we don't. So that's the primary reason why recycling is not happening. And obviously, you know, you, you, you can, we can talk about separate um, uh, collection and, you know, better management of contaminants, all that. But all those things will be taken care of if there is a higher value of recyclates and uh, recycled materials. So that's one thing. Another thing is that, well, there are a number of technological solutions that have not been implemented because, partly because of the fact that, well, the recycling doesn't really uh, generate uh, profit. 
So, for example, um, you may notice that well, the uh, when you look at the plastic bottle, the the body part of the bottle. Um, has a different, so the cap is a different material than body part of the mo- uh, yeah, bottle. Yeah, yeah. So when when we are doing recycling, actually we have actually have to separate them. But separating them manually takes a lot of effort, right? So what normally happens is that you basically chop them into small pieces, and um, you normally grab it to separate them. So there can be air separation, like you imagine that there's conveyor belt, those chopped plastics particles are going through the conveyor belt and then they are you know dumped into the air and then there is a fan blowing underneath and then lighter ones go farther and heavier ones fall down oh, you know, cool. that's one of the separation methods uh, but those separation methods have very uh, low efficiency so there will be always contaminants and those mm-hmm. contaminants degrade the quality of recyclates and that is one of the obstacles of recycling so but those obstacles can easily be addressed by modulating the density of different materials. So some countries actually mandate manufacturers to um, produce those caps um, and the uh, the body of the the, the bottle um, with certain uh, threshold uh, density difference. So if densities of those two materials are large enough, then the uh, the contamination rate. Um, goes down dramatically, and um, so th- there's another uh, technological solutions and another kind of policy solution in Japan is that well in Japan by law all the bottle manufacturers are required to produce their labels that can be ripped away by one go. Mm-hmm. So those labels are again a different material and they are contaminants in recycling, so they should be easily removable. But in the U.S., removing those labels are nightmare. But in Japan, it can be very easily removed so that uh, you can um, maintain the quality recyclate. And besides, there, there, there's a whole bunch of new chemistry that are being developed to um, improve the recycling rate. So we generally try to create monomers out of the polymers. Polymers is basically what, what we call plastics, and uh, the efficiency is very low, but uh, there are new uh, so a form of chemicals that have very high efficiency conversion between the monomer, the polymers to monomers. So in these cases, you know, those monomers are bonded with um, materials that can be easily dissolved under certain solvents. So once you put those, um, you know, end-of-life plastics into solvent, basically it dissolves those uh, bonding materials so that it, uh, it generates monomers with very high purity. But that, those are not yet uh, commercially available, but there are a lot of uh, research being being done. So what would you do? Moment. What would you do with those monomers? Well, then monomers can be easily tra- uh, converted into polymers again, so that oh. you know you can you can recycle them with almost hundred percent efficiency. Currently, the efficiency of uh, uh, of recycling is very low, so yeah. you lose a lot of materials because of contaminants. But in this case, uh, you can maintain almost a near hundred uh, percent efficiency. That's almost like aluminum, where you can melt it down and then just exactly. reform it, right? And exactly. I think that's the myth about recycling. I think that's what a lot of people think plastic recycling is: is they're taking plastic, they're like melting it down and making it like brand new again. But no. We're losing um, up to 20% uh, while doing that. So so in many cases, more than 20%, depending on the quality of recyclate. So it's a very inefficient process. 
But if we if we took the polymers down to monomers and then put them to polymers again, we would have nearly hundred percent recovery. Yeah, these new new breed of chemicals, new breed of uh, polymers are uh, are uh, able to do that. But these are more expensive, and um, there is no you know commercial plant that are actually producing them. That would fit in well with your recommendation to make plastics a bit more expensive. Would <laughs> a plastics tax work as well? Well, I think that um, it can be. It can be. Um, there are two things that I want to mention. One, um, I think it will be arbitrary to to say plastics tax because you know um, then well, some people may say, well, why don't we do like um, you know paper tax or why don't we do you know this tax or that tax? But instead, if we can, for example, institute um, carbon tax, carbon pricing. Um, which is, you know, probably more universally measurable than um, other types of uh, environmental externalities, it could be uh, a significant improvement already. Um, so it doesn't have to be plastic-specific. If we tax carbon, that could do it. And another um, thing that I want to mention is that when um, we talk about increasing prices of materials, I know that um, you know whoever say that will not be very popular. Nobody likes a higher price. No, and, and, and it, think about what what happened in in France. Yellow vest, you know, the riots and uh, you know violent uh, demonstrations happened only for about thirty cents per gallon of um, gasoline tax increase. It was yeah. just proposed, and so if we talk about the uh, substantial increase in the material price for for plastics it will easily backfire. There will be social resistance against it. Um, and partly because plastics are so valuable and cheap, especially for low-income families. We need to find a ways in which we can protect low-income families if we decide to increase the price of plastics. Yeah. So we just put a carbon tax in Canada federally, and it, it hurts lower-income families because they can't yeah. afford to get a brand-new EV, so they are driving... And they're gas guzzlers and they're paying more. And then in Canada, you know, it gets down to minus 30 Celsius here. And so we don't yeah. have any other way to heat our home exactly. without oil and gas. So I feel like our carbon tax here is really hurting those people. Whereas people who have, who are, who are rich would, they wouldn't care about their hot tub or their six bedroom home or, or whatever. Right. So it's, it's tough for that. So I, I hope that. In Canada, we can focus on things to get us away from the two things we depend on to survive here, which is transportation to work yeah. and then also heating our homes. So things like geothermal, like if there were more, there's more use for that, then we wouldn't have to use propane and, and, and stuff to heat our homes. So we have different challenges up I here agree. for sure. But I'm glad you think about everyone because it, it really sucks to see people who are struggling it sucks to see the government implement things that make them struggle so much more. Like I don't, I don't like to see that. So, yeah, great. Yeah. So, do you do you do things in your own life to reduce your your waste? Well, I I think about it all the time and um, not always successful. <laughs> but, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. One of the things that I practice is um, is dietary intervention. So I um, try to eat less meat and. And um, more vegetables, and it's also good for health. And um, so mm. there are 
good co-benefits uh, with that. So that's one of the things I try. And I want to try to um, live a simple life as much as I can. Nice. Yeah, we had a show about this from the millennial minimalists. And it's all about just kind of living with less clutter in yeah, every exactly. aspect. Yeah, and it's nice. It's a little bit liberating. You have less stuff to clean, less stuff around your house to tidy up when you just buy less. So it's nice. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this has just been really informative. I've learned so much. I feel like my head is spinning a little bit because (laughs) there are so many things I didn't know. So thank you very much for taking the time and speaking with me today. And I will try to watch and see if you come out with any more studies because I'd love to bring you back on and talk about anything else that you end up finding for us. Great. But it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much and have a good day and keep up the good work. Okay. Take care. Bye. That was Sangwon Su from the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management at the University of California in Santa Barbara. If you like our show and want to help save the world from all this trash we're consuming, please consider donating to the Zero Waste Countdown. You can become a patron on Podbean, you can find me on Patreon, or you can donate right on the website, zerowastecountdown.com. And if you're interested in seeing a photo of our guests, you can check us out on Instagram, that's zero underscore waste underscore countdown. And if you want to email me, it's laura at zerowastecountdown.com. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thanks to all our listeners in America, Canada, Australia, Germany, the UK, and wherever else you may be tuning in from. Together, we're going to change the world. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.